is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, the daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. January 6th, 2021. We rushed them. We charged them. We got all the way to the steps. Rioters storming the U.S. Capitol, getting past those steps and into the building, looking to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Members of Congress fleeing to their offices, some even barricading themselves inside for hours and hours. The scene was chaotic as Capitol Hill police could not hold the crowd back. President Biden marked the anniversary of the insurrection today with a fiery address from the Capitol. Those who stormed this Capitol and those who instigated and incited and those who called on them to do so held a dagger at the throat of America. The president also slamming former President Trump for spreading lies about the election. The country survived, but for how long? We'll go in-depth into the Capitol Hill insurrection. We'll hear from local Congressman Adam Schiff, who will recount the chaos of the day and explain what he and other members of the January 6th Commission hope to uncover about those who've sparked the whole thing. We'll also hear from the Republican side whether party loyalists believe it can move forward in a viable way with or without the former president. And a growing number of doctors also now say maybe it's time for the Biden administration to switch the COVID strategies and accept that it's not going away. We'll have that at the end of the show. Let's begin with President Biden and Congress marking the insurrection anniversary. With us now is CBS White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Stephen, thanks for being with us. What is the mood like today, a year later in Washington? Well, it, it, the mood, the mood is somber, gentlemen. The mood is one of uh, deep reflection, uh, of pain. But what's interesting and perhaps a bit uh, distressing is the fact that this has been viewed increasingly through a partisan lens. And there are a number of elected Republicans today who have publicly said that the Democrats are making too much of January 6. I will say that the president's day, I've rarely heard him more forceful. His 25 minute speech this morning had him directly laying the blame for the riot a year ago today on his predecessor. He said that the, the former president of the United States created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. And why? Because, among other reasons, the president argued Donald Trump's bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. The president repeatedly said that Donald Trump can't accept the fact that he lost the last election, and that's why he continues to hammer home this notion that the presidency was stolen from him. The president, the current president, uttered the phrase former president 16 times, but didn't once uh, say the name Donald Trump. You mentioned the Republicans who have said the Democrats are making too much of today. We can also, though, remember their statements on the day of saying that mm. President Trump had something to do with this. You know, it, morally, uh, he sent people over there. They've since backpedaled. How many Republicans did you see on the Hill today? Well, it's interesting. The decision was made jointly by the congressional leadership, Democrats, 
and the White House to have the president of the United States speak from Statuary Hall at a podium with the presidential seal without any of the congressional leadership joining him, which is rare and very unusual. When the president of the United States, the singular representative of the executive branch, comes into the Capitol, the home of the legislative branch, it is always as a guest of the Congress. Uh, When the president delivers the State of the Union, it is at the invitation of the House Speaker uh, to speak in the House chamber. When the inauguration happens every four years, there's a congressional committee that's appointed, a joint committee that goes to escort the president-elect or the sitting president to be re-inaugurated. So the idea that the president himself would speak from the, the, the home of the House and Senate without the congressional leadership around him, I've never seen that before. Uh, and it was clearly intentional. Vice President Harris spoke first, and then President Biden from Statuary Hall. The symbolism of that is that it's a historic chamber where uh, the House of Representatives met for five decades before the House and Senate wings were attached to the original Capitol. And it's also the room where, for example, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln served in the House of Representatives in the lead up to, to the Civil War. It's where great Americans are honored with statues from each of the states. The uh, president today said that uh, the former president and his supporters have perpetuated the lie for the last year. And that is perhaps why, to get to your point, Mike, why increasingly Republicans who are in and out of office and perhaps aspire to enter public office have increasingly said what the former president has been saying, the the lie that, in fact, Joe Biden didn't win the last election. And uh, it is so different. The contrast is clear. I was on the air for eight and a half hours a year ago today. And over the course of our coverage, we had a live interview that we simulcast on CBS TV. Uh, That is, it was a TV interview with simulcast on the radio, uh, where Nora O'Donnell is on the air with Kevin McCarthy, the top Republican in the House, who said that he had just spoken to Donald Trump, then the sitting president, and implored him to send a signal to his supporters to please leave the Capitol and please end this. And you've heard since uh, all the things that uh, McCarthy and other top Republicans were saying just this week. The January 6th committee in the House of Representatives said it was seeking more information from the hosts on Fox News who were in direct communication with Donald Trump's inner circle in the days before and after the riot. So that's Stephen. So, Stephen, but that leads me and we're going to run out of time, I'm afraid. But but that leads me to this uh, question, because uh, Mike and I remember very well uh, that day as well. We were on the air for quite some time trying to figure out and make sense out of what was happening there. And there is a a sentiment. uh, The president today sort of uh, implied it. Others have said it more, I think, explicitly that January 6th last year was not perhaps uh, the end of something, but the beginning of something. Is that a kind of widespread mood there? Well, I think it's a chilling thought, Charles. I think that, you know, uh, the, the, the fear that so many of us here in Washington and across the country have is that, and you see it expressed in, in a recent CBS News poll, where most Americans believe that political violence is now part of our process. It's a horrifying thought. I think it goes right to what President Biden was trying to get to in his speech today. CBS White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Stephen, thanks. Members of Congress were sent rushing to their offices. This as rioters busted into the Capitol. It was a scary, intense few hours, and it got many of them thinking about the future of this country. With us now is Democratic Congressman from L.A., Ted Lieu. Congressman, thanks for being with us. 
tell Thank us, you. Tell us about that day a year ago and what was going through your mind as it was unfolding and as the rest of the country was watching on. I remember a Capitol Police officer uh, rushing into my office telling us to evacuate immediately. And so when a police officer says that, you follow those orders, and we evacuated uh, to another building via the basement tunnels. And then I looked on my phone to see what was happening. It became clear that a mob was descending on Capitol Hill. And eventually we went into lockdown uh, in the office of Congressmember David Cicilline, And as we watched TV, we came to realization that not only was a mob attacking the Capitol, but that the former president had incited that mob. And that's when we started drafting the article of impeachment while under lockdown that day, because we weren't sure what other crazy thing the former president would do in the next two weeks before January 20th. And today... What do you think? We mentioned in the last segment leading up to you that there are some Republicans pointing to Democrats and saying they're overblowing this whole thing. They're using it for political purposes today. And I also I read a piece saying, you know what, there's a worry that people just at large population has kind of tuned out because they're exhausted via maybe the previous presidency or because of covid. And they think, you know what, it's been a year. It's fine. Let's just move on. The supporters of the former president showed up on January 6th, not because they were upset about health care policies. They showed up to stop the certification of Joe Biden's victory, and they used violence to nullify an election. Anyone who downplays that is a traitor. This was an attack on our democracy. This cannot be forgotten. We cannot just move on without holding the perpetrators at all levels responsible. And people continue to perpetuate the big lie, somehow um, are going to make things even worse. And we need to fight back because the truth is the former president got crushed in popular vote and he lost the electoral college. And we can't have a democracy if people use violence to get their way when they don't succeed at the ballot box. I've I've read comments from some of your fellow Democrats to the effect of, uh, well, on that day on the 6th, despite everything, democracy won because in the end, Joe Biden was rightfully certified as the next president of the United States. And yet that's a a very non-nuanced, in my view anyway, uh, view, because it may have won that night, but the danger is still very much real and present, is it not? Absolutely. And by the way, democracy actually lost that day because the supporters of the former president did succeed in stopping the certification. It was not done on January 6th. It didn't happen until the next day in the early morning hours of January 7th when we decided to reconvene and finish our duty. So they did successfully delay it on that day. And with the big lie, you have Americans now believing that votes uh, that are legitimately cast somehow should not be counted. And you can't have a democracy if people don't have faith in the electoral system. And we're also in this place. I mean, you read the news, you've seen the polling over the last week leading up to the events today. There are more and more people out there who seem okay with the idea that violence is okay to get your political will out there. That is one of the most disturbing polls I've seen recently. And for those people who think violence is okay, uh, then they should consider, well, 
who would engage in that violence and on uh, what issues, because the only reason we're in democracy is because we've chosen to settle political disagreements through voting rather than through violence. And if you're going to use violence to get your way, then that's not democracy. It's anarchy. I'm curious, uh, Congressman, knowing what you know now, when you made the decision to run for the uh, U.S. Congress, would you have made that decision uh, or would you have as many people now, your colleagues, those who are resigning, retiring, whatever, because they just don't think that they can continue doing what they're doing? Would you have made a different decision Well, as a life choice? I'm just curious. Uh, that's a fascinating question. And the answer is I would uh, do exactly the same thing because I believe that defending democracy uh, is one of the most critical things that a legislator can do. And we are trying to get voting rights legislation through. Uh, we're working with the January 6th committee uh, to make sure that the full truth comes out and to hold all the perpetrators of the January 6th attack accountable. So now is a critical time for our democracy. Democratic Congressman from L.A., Ted Lieu. Congressman, thanks. And still ahead, Congressman Adam Schiff joining us to share his memories of the insurrection and what is next for the January 6th commission. And a former advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence joins us to share her thoughts on whether the Republican Party can and should distance itself from former President Trump. Speaking of Republicans, largely but not entirely absent from the events today at the Capitol, um, Liz Cheney and her father, former Vice President Dick Cheney, were there. Both have been very critical of former President Trump. What is next for Republicans? With us is Republican strategist Rena Shaw. She was in D.C. a year ago, filmed the insurrection from nearby. Rena, thanks for talking to us. Take me back to that day when you're looking through your camera or your phone, and what are you thinking? Well, thank you for having me. It's hard to believe this was a year ago that I was uh, on the roof of the closest private building you could get to the U.S. Capitol West Front. Uh, I was there to offer political commentary uh, with the Al Jazeera Media Network. It was a pre-planned thing for me. I knew it was going to be a big day. I was ready for that, but I never imagined it would go the direction it did. There was certainly uh, incivility, anger on display, but the political violence, that's what stuck with me. I was trapped for six hours uh, on the roof of that building. Uh, I felt it unsafe to leave. The people I was with also felt it unsafe to leave. We had no clue the situation down there. On the way to the, the building that I was at, I had seen Proud Boys in the streets with their flags. So I knew it was them. I knew that there were people who were gathered there to demonstrate in front of the Capitol. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, the ellipse in front of the White House. They were going to be there for a rally. And so there were road closures. But in the detours through the city, as I was making my way, and to see the Proud Boys, it, it, it gave me chills. I, obviously, businesses were boarded up. It was a tough moment to see all that. But when I got to the building and things really started around 1230, I watched the crowd gather on the west front of the Capitol. And over the course of an hour and a half, it got even worse. The crowd became bigger. And then I would say the crescendo really was uh, – I'm not sure if I have this accurately, but per my timestamps, I, I really remember around the 2.30, close to 3 p.m. mark was really when the, the action started. Um, there was nothing but incessant sounds of uh, what I felt were muskets, but I now know was tear glass being de deployed, nonstop sirens. I didn't leave until 6 p.m., and uh, as I was leaving, I realized I was in a tent next to conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. I had seen him and his men actually 
uh, in tactical gear, taking pictures with the scene that was unfolding, but getting that bird's eye view uh, as an American and uh, as a millennial, I must say, uh, we're taught this in history books. Just never, ever thought this kind of thing would happen here. And yet, let me ask you this, as since you're a Republican strategist, what you just described, that you were an eyewitness to, is 180 degrees from what many people, if not most, in the Republican Party, your party, now say happened on that day. Their view is it was largely peaceful, that the real insurrection was Election Day. This was just on the 6th of January, a way to compensate for that. How do you reconcile what your own eyes and ears saw and heard with what Republicans in the Republican Party are now saying? It almost boggles one's mind because it's so nonsensical. We live in an era where we're, we do everything on our phones. I just ordered groceries. I mean, this is, this is visual evidence we've gotten so much of it. There's been a drip drop in particular in these past few months of, of a truly uh, the evidence that nobody can dispute. And here we are where people who were supposed to be for the Constitution are saying it's okay that its words be twisted by certain politicians. Now, I must say for, for our listeners, I am a bit of a persona non grata in the Republican Party. I have not left the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party left me. I worked for two Republican members of the House of Representatives uh, from 2008 until 2011. And when I left in 2011, I built up a political consulting practice with people who are running for Congress from across the country. It was a great pleasure to travel for everywhere from Boise to Jacksonville to meet people who, who really subscribe to the very values I had, fiscal conservatism and, and some social stuff as well. But, but in reality, where the party is right now is you see the vast majority of its members saying, no, this, this was warranted. This attack was warranted. We should be able to do this kind of thing. And when I say do this kind of thing, it means almost like overthrow the U.S. government. That's not something that's American. In fact, that's anti-American. Everything that we're taught in schools that matches up with the values of the Republican Party seem to be on their head today. And I don't know that you can talk sense into people without giving them a very personal gripping narrative. For me, in 2016, I was a delegate to the Republican National Convention. And when I became the first delegate in the country to speak out about against former candidate at that time, he was the candidate, Donald Trump, I was completely written off by my local party. I was I went through what was would be considered a political witch hunt as well. But when people hear it from my mouth, I see the cogs in their head turning because they think that that's something so far and away. But I say if they could do it to me, somebody who made their career in the Republican Party, they can do it to anyone. And we should be concerned about people not being embraced for their. Uh, I would say intellectual diversity. We should embrace that in America. It doesn't matter what your party affiliation is. We should push back on political violence, and we should call things out for what they are, no matter where it's happening. That's the only way we preserve American democracy and do good by the words of the founders of this country. Republican strategist uh, Rena Shaw. Rena, thanks for talking to us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Burbank Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff is a member of the January 6th committee. He was in the Capitol a year ago, has shared his experiences that day, saying a police officer told him and others grab gas masks as rioters entered the building. 
He's also been highly critical of former President Trump and those around him. So what are he and other committee members finding out about that day? Congressman Schiff is with us now. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you again. So uh, in the year that has gone by, what do we, what do you know that you didn't know then? Well, I think we see much more clearly that January 6th was not an isolated occurrence, but was really only one uh, line of multiple lines of effort to overturn the election. Um, Other uh, efforts uh, included pressuring local elections officials and pressuring state legislators to decertify the results or send a bogus slate of electors to the Capitol. Uh, We've learned about a plot at the Justice Department at the highest levels uh, to try to misuse that department to promulgate false claims of massive fraud or to discourage states like Georgia from sending its slate of electors. Uh, And, you know, we learned that uh, January 6th was the culmination of these efforts, um, but but only one of the multifarious ways in which the former president uh, and his enablers sought to uh, negate the will of the American people who voted for someone else for president. On the outside looking in... We can see like a drip, drip, drip. The texts go out, the subpoenas, the contempt proceedings. Is this happening quickly enough? Because if you're on a time limit, and maybe you are with midterms coming up, the Republicans take control again, this committee could be gone. I think the the only really important timeline is, you know, the the fact that this could happen again. Uh, And I don't mean just uh, the possibility of an attack on the Capitol, but rather the proliferation of political violence attacks on other capitals, uh, threats against uh, city council members and school board members and local elections officials. Uh, The the risk of increased political violence has gone up since this date last year, not down. Uh, And that's a very dangerous development. So we feel a real sense of urgency about our work, quite separate from anything to do with the political calendar. Uh, We are going to finish our work, though, this year. And the, uh, you know, in terms of when this year, Uh, Part of the timing is beyond our control because the former president is litigating to try to stop us. But I think the courts are wise now, after watching him do that for four years, that litigation is a delay tactic for him. Uh, And they have been moving with incredible speed uh, to uh, essentially reject his claims. You know, uh, I was thinking of a parallel here with the pandemic where people, you know, medical people talk about how we are now sort of in the new normal and, and I'm wondering if the things that we were just now talking about, uh, about, uh, uh, you know, violence, uh, political violence, the efforts to, to disenfranchise voters, that sort of thing, if politically we are now not in a new, quote, normal, as bad as that new normal is. You know, we can't accept that as the new normal, um, because what that means is, acceptance of a certain amount of violence, uh, that people are going to uh, take matters into their own hands, that we can't rely on elections to decide who should govern, that now this is somehow legitimized, um, or that uh, we're going to allow people to simply reinvent history and uh, and, uh, persuade uh, millions of Americans uh, that, that lies are truth and the truth is a lie. Uh, so we can't accept that reality. Uh, if we do, it means the end of our democracy. Um, and, and so I think you're right. Um, it's going to be a very difficult job to persuade many in the country who live in a certain information bubble where all they get is from Fox primetime or 
other right-wing media, and they're not exposed to contrary views, uh, and they're not exposed to the truth. Uh, but we have to try to overcome that. The level of threats that you mentioned itself, I mean, there's been like thousands of them. Death threats against lawmakers, you certainly have had them for the past several years come at you. What has that been like in terms of trying to do your job and worrying about your family? Well, it's been hard. Uh, you know, there were times when the threats became so severe that uh, my wife and I had to talk about whether uh, she and my son needed to go uh, live with a relative for a while until things blew over. Um, I never expected to have to be concerned about my personal safety to be a representative. That was something that happened in other countries, but it is all too common now. And, uh, you know, there have been times where I definitely said I just need to get through the day, and at the end of the day I would remark to myself with some surprise uh, that I'm still standing. Um, but uh, I've been very fortunate to have uh, some very, very supportive constituents who've had my back uh, that I'm grateful to and a wonderful and strong family uh, that has kept me going. Usually it's the president, not usually, it always is the president that gives the State of the Union. But since you're on with us now, what in your view is the State of the Union now? Well, I mean, this was really one of the painful realizations today when I stepped onto the House floor and stood in exactly the place where I stood one year ago when insurrectionists were breaking the doors and beating in the windows, uh, and that is our democracy is more fragile today than it was a year ago. Um, that same big lie that led to the attack on the Capitol is being used around the country to disenfranchise people of color, to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisans who will overturn the next election if they lose it. Uh, and so our democracy is weaker than a year ago, um, even as we have made progress on the economy, uh, and I hope and pray we make progress against this pernicious virus. Um, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that our democracy is very fragile uh, and that it's going to need our vigorous defense. Burbank Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman, thanks. Well, more Republicans are distancing themselves from former President Trump, especially after the insurrection, but still, still a minority. So is the party stuck with him, like it or not? Is there a Republican Party future without Donald Trump? Should there be? With us is Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence, director of the Republican Accountability Project. Olivia, thanks for coming back on the show. So here's what makes a lot of people think, of course, he's still the head of the party. And of course, this is going to be his GOP. So many lawmakers still go with the big lie. They say it's true that he won, that this was stolen. And then for new candidates, it kind of seems like this is the litmus test to run. Is it? Yeah, look, unfortunately, well, first, thanks for having me back. But unfortunately, you know, this is coming from me, who has supported the Republican Party my entire life until more recently. And I think when you have this as the platform and you're still running on the platform of an election being stolen, the election of 2020, and that's a litmus test for candidates, Donald Trump certainly remains in the picture. He remains the puppeteer, I would say, for all these people. And it's unfortunate. I think there's been, there has been time and time again, opportunity for Republican leaders who are currently elected in Congress to push back on this um, but yet they continue to double down on this narrative. I'm curious, since you were, as we uh, pointed out, a former 
advisor to Mike Pence, former vice president. Uh, are you disappointed in him? Uh, I mean, initially, uh, you know, he did the right thing in the end, and he and he, he helped with the certification of Joe Biden and, and didn't uh, follow uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, wishes. But then he kind of backed away, and he's been supportive of Mr. Trump in the past few months. Are you disappointed by him? I have to be honest that I am. I, you know, I... I had hoped and believed that he would do the right thing uh, a year ago on January 6th, and that is exactly what he did. He did his constitutional duty, um, and I'm grateful for that because we would we would be in a worse place, I would say, had he not done that. And I hate to think of the aftermath of what that would have entailed if he hadn't. But unfortunately, I think when you continue to push, you know, election integrity narratives, and I say that in quotes, um, and you don't stand up and say, hey, this is what happened. And I think that's why it's important. You know, I, there, there's talk of him cooperating with the January 6th committee, or at least his staff. I think that's really critically important. Um, but I do hope, I continue to hope that Mike Pence will eventually speak up and clear the record, because I think there was opportunity for him to be a leader in this and, and, and support people like Liz Cheney, a longtime conservative, and take the party in a different direction. But unfortunately, he hasn't. And I I find it really disheartening. Why haven't more? Why can't they break out of this? Is it just if you want to stay in power? Because if this is what the base thinks, they're going to vote for you. And then there's no way out. And these are politicians. So politicians are going to try and hang on to the job? I think it is. I think it's self-preservation. I think it's putting their own self-interest for power over the good of the nation and the country. And I think we've got to move past that. This is really about a very dark period that we're facing right now, this divisiveness, um, the potential for political violence, and look, the threats and attacks on election officials and those that really, those Republicans, even at the state level, that really stood and held their ground and certified the election and did everything they could. I'm very concerned about what that means going forward when we're seeing some of the groundwork being put in place at the state and local level to potentially overturn elections and placing hyper-partisan individuals in roles that traditionally would not would be nonpartisan. And I think that is a recipe for how democracy dies and how how we fail. You know, if we all search our memories to our childhoods, we all remember those those Disney films, some better than, than others, where something eventually breaks the evil spell. What breaks this spell? Well, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, I think until there is accountability. Um, and I think that that is accountability at all levels, not just the people on January 6th that attacked the Capitol, but I'm talking about the people who led the charge. Um, I think that's one piece of it. I think it's also um, responsibility for those. Um, look, these people are still fundraising. A lot of these um, unprincipled people who continue to push lies and everything, they're still fundraising and the money is coming from somewhere. I think that matters. I think that's you know something to really take a step back and are you really funding such a, such an endeavor, such an effort instead of really actually, if you're looking to fund true conservatism, this isn't it. Um, this is not what the Republican Party was based on. This is not the party of Lincoln anymore. And so I think that's part of it. And also just breaking through um, this disinformation campaign that continues targeting Americans on a daily basis through echo chambers, especially on the far right, unfortunately, and I think that that is um, what will be critical going forward. I think it's going to take all of us really uniting who really care about what's happening across the country, whether you're conservative, 
liberal, whatever, whatever you believe in politically, if you believe in democracy and you believe in America United, I think we're going to have to work together on this going forward. What do the moderates or, or you know, old guard conservatives do? Where's the place for them here? I mean, Liz Cheney and, and Dick Cheney on the floor and all the Democrats rushing over to, to shake Dick Cheney's hand and say, thanks for being here. That is not what we thought would happen. He wouldn't be the hero of the January 6th one year later for them. No, I'm sure I, that was um, that, that image, I have to say, was so powerful. And yeah, I don't think anybody would have ever guessed that, right, that you would see this moment. But I think that's an important moment to happen. And I'm really sad that uh, other Republicans were absent, other than Adam Kinzinger, who I know would, was there in spirit. But I think, you know, I, I do think that um, it's going to have to be those that are principled. And for the moderates out there, um, look, a lot of a lot of people right now feel, feel politically homeless. There, I think, you know, the country for the most part, from what we've seen, is moderate. There's a lot of people in the center. There's a lot of people that are center right, center left, um, and those are the people that I would say, and the independents. Um, your voice will matter more than anything, especially in these midterms. I know we always focus on presidential years, but I think these midterms will determine a lot about the course of the future of the country. And so I think you need to look at the candidates. Um, and, you know, I think <laughs> find the principled candidates that are out there. And I would, I would ask that you really think about the more extreme voices and what that will mean going forward and whether that will be good governance in terms of it. Because we're not arguing about taxes here. We're not arguing, you know, about policy, really. This is more about dangerous rhetoric and extremism um, and really what I would say, the grift, right, of, of this. It's all based on a lie. Olivia Troy, former advisor to Mike Pence, director of the Republican Accountability Project. Olivia, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. New COVID vaccines out there. Corbivax, developed in Texas, recently been approved in India, being called a game changer for the developing world. It's cheap, easy to store, and could play a major role in getting us out of this pandemic. With us now is one of the co-developers of the vaccine, Dr. Peter Hotez, uh, dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. And some people know him as the bow tie doctor because he's usually on TV wearing a bow How many bow ties do you have? <laughs> we love a bow tie. Not as many as you might think, but I but I wear them often. <laughs> okay, so tell us about this particular vaccine and how does it differ from the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna and the Johnson and Johnson? And you can go on. There's a small list of other vaccines available. Yeah, I mean the the COVID vaccines we have in the U.S. use all brand new technologies, which were used to rapidly immunize the U.S. population. And the, the problem with them is they're the ability to scale them to the billions of doses needed for the world's low and middle income countries, especially in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So ours is an older technology, one that's been around a few decades, the same one used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine, which has been around for several decades and used throughout the world. And it's made through microbial fermentation in yeast. It's a recombinant protein vaccine. It's actually a, a vegan vaccine. It doesn't use, does not use any animal uh, materials at all. And um, the the nice thing about it is there's no limit to the amount you can scale. It's That technology is, u- is used to make vaccines locally in India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Brazil, many other countries. 
and and simple refrigeration it's the lowest cost of all the vaccines maybe around two dollars a dose and uh, tremendous safety record and safety profile just like the hepatitis b vaccine so when you go down that checklist it really does check the boxes as something that's uh, an outstanding target product profile for a global COVID vaccine. Was it always so kind our of... group, which has made these vaccines for years for parasitic disease and all other coronavirus vaccines, just pivoted and made it for the COVID-19 vaccine. And we transferred the technology with no patents, no strings attached. Yeah, I was going to say, was this always kind of on your mind in that kind of area? Like, okay, we can dust this off, we can make this work, and we can get this out to... to other countries yeah because we had made uh, SARS and MERS vaccines uh, over the last decade so when the COVID-19 sequence uh, came online I contacted my science partner for the last 20 years Dr. Mary Elena Botazzi said Mary Elena we got this we can make this and and then it was a matter of just trying to get some funds to support our scientific program and we were off to the races and you were mentioning about uh, patents and things like that, no strings attached. So talk a little bit about the economics of it, because it's part of the sales point, obviously, for this vaccine, because you mentioned it's cheaper than the others. Who actually makes the money on this? Do you? We do not. Um, and and how much the, the vaccine producers uh, in India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and Botswana, where we licensed it, we help in the co-development, will make is not clear either. I mean, it, you know, when you're in a, when your house is on fire, you don't start looking at how you're going to make money on something. And, and that's what we've worked with these partners for a long time and know that they have the same commitment that we have to save lives. And that's been our priority. You probably know how good it is against uh, original COVID and, and maybe Delta. Do we know anything about Omicron or, or how it might stack up as we because we're going to get more of these variants and hopefully we get enough vaccines out there to, to try and, you know, help the world so we don't see as many of them. Well, what we know is it's it's stacking up better than most of the vaccines against uh, Delta, Beta. Do you remember the B1351 that also rose out of South Africa last year? And um, just about every variant, we do not have access yet to the Omicron virus or pseudovirus, but uh, we do now, and so those experiments are forthcoming. So we have some optimism. It, it, it'll definitely not be as effective again as it is against Delta and the original lineages, but we think it'll be more effective than many of the existing uh, COVID vaccines. Do you see? And me? again, this is the reason why to do it, because you know, as long as we fail to vaccinate the world, we're going to have variants like Delta and Omicron arise out of the world's low and middle income countries. Do you see this vaccine being used here? We would love it. Um, the problem is it's we've not been able to engage a U.S. partner, a U.S. pharmaceutical partner, and it does require investment to, to make that happen. We get, I'm getting emails and calls every day, though, from people who say they you know, are a bit skittish about mRNA vaccines, either for themselves or their kids. They would love it, but so it's unfortunate we don't have that path, but you know, the way it worked was Operation Warp Speed was all about incentivizing uh, the pharma companies for new technology. So we were odd men out in terms of receiving that kind of uh, funding. And and now I think any new company coming in looking at this might see that the U.S. market is now flooded with mRNA vaccines. So there's not a lot of incentive for companies to get into this space. Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine. Sometimes it's the old stuff that works.
Well, a group of former medical advisors to the Biden administration team, transition team, now getting a little frustrated with his administration's COVID response. So they are, they're out with a couple of op-eds in the Journal of the American Medical Association where they write that the administration needs to change strategies. They say it's time to switch to a new normal of living with the virus rather than trying to wipe it out. Dr. Samuel Scarpino is managing director of the Pathogen Surveillance at the Rockefeller Foundation Pandemic Prevention Institute, works with one of the op-ed authors, Dr. Rick Bright. Uh, Dr. Scarpino, thanks for being with us. So uh, people can go and read these, and, and they probably should, but take us through some of it. There's a key piece in one of them that says, you know what, it always seems like we're kind of chasing whatever crisis was a month ago. So now we're chasing Omicron, it's going to be with us, but we're always kind of behind the eight ball. How do we get ourselves in front of it, or at least, you know, neck and neck? Thanks so much for having me. And that's absolutely right. One of the persistent public health challenges in the United States and in many countries is that we're always playing catch up. We don't invest enough in preparedness. If you think about the fact that with the stimulus funds that were distributed, that works out to about a million dollars per school in the U.S., very few of those schools invested in the kind of ventilation systems that will help us have safer in-person schooling. We know that test turnaround times are still far too long. And whether it's the response to Wuhan back in 2020, the response to the Delta variant, now the response to the Omicron variant, we keep doing this catch-up game again and again and again. But why do we do it again and again and again? Is it that we have a pandemic, a parallel pandemic of stupidity in the country? Why do we do this? Well, part of it is that preparing for a pandemic is expensive and complicated. We know that people are going to have a behavioral response that's hard to predict. We know that it's become incredibly polarized in terms of people's positions on mask wearing, on interventions in schools, uh, on just about everything that, that is a part of, of the pandemic response. So that's certainly one of it. But the other is I think there's this kind of out of sight, out of mind mentality that seems to happen, that as soon as things get a little bit better, you know, we declare victory and try to move on. And unfortunately, uh, the pandemic is not done with us yet. And we need to be preparing both for the next variant, but also for the next virus that may find itself in a crowded marketplace somewhere in the world. Seems like the answers have always kind of been here. We just haven't gotten to them. Number one is testing, right? We've had all this time to ramp up testing and make it better and make it easier. And, you know, Europe and Germany, you can go to the pharmacy and they give you your two for the week and then send you home and it's free or it's seven bucks or whatever it is. And here you can't even find one half the time. Or, you know, I see the tweet every once in a while. Why didn't we mail N95s to everybody and put them in their mailbox? Like this stuff could have been done. Oh, I agree. I think there's a lot we could have done. You know, we could have testing and N95 masks also, you know, at libraries, at community centers, you know, just ubiquitous, you know, in bathrooms, all sorts of places where you can just pick them up and use them. There are some new tools that we're exploring at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. One of those is environmental-based surveillance, so wastewater epidemiology. We've got partners in places like Houston that are searching for the Omicron variant around nursing homes, around schools to try to deploy resources. I do think we need to get a lot smarter about a targeted response so that we can have as much of a normal existence as possible. But yes, there's so much more we need to be doing on the testing, and, and especially now on the mask wearing side. Well, other than developing these really incredible vaccines that, are, that have great efficacy and are, from all observation and data, really safe, other than that, and that's 
I don't mean to, to downplay that development. That what, small thing. Yeah, that small thing. Historic but, vaccines. But, but what else did we do? Did we do anything right other than that throughout this pandemic? Because it does seem as if the list of things we've done wrong and are still doing wrong is really long. Well, first, I would certainly agree that, you know, the that in terms of developing the vaccines is kind of, you know, like putting a man on the moon. It's one of I, I certainly would think and probably others would agree with me, one of the biggest scientific and medical accomplishments in, in generations. And that's because of decades of investment in, in this mRNA technology and, and also a huge investment on the part of the federal government to uh, re, you know expedite the, the Moderna version of the vaccine. You know, things that we have done well outside of of the vaccine itself you know we're seeing more wastewater based surveillance come online you know we have seen testing improve at, at times you know we have this school based testing program uh, that has has led to you know many 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 more schools being able to stay open than than have been than would have otherwise you know we do have a lot of masks available now you can buy N95 masks you know over over the internet in many hardware stores so you know, there are things that we have done better. I think it's just that we haven't done enough. We haven't embraced enough the importance of a layered public health strategy that has masking, ventilation uh, with the vaccines, contact tracing, these mobile apps that we all heard about two years ago that, that never went anywhere in the U.S. have saved lots of lives internationally. All these things prevent transmission, but they're also good for the economy. They prevent lockdowns. They keep schools open. All of our goals that we have are better achievable with this layered approach. Dr. Samuel Scarpino, Managing Director, Pathogen Surveillance, the Rockefeller Foundation's Pandemic Prevention Institute, works with one of the authors of these uh, op-eds that have been going around, the uh, former uh, Biden advisors, and that would be Dr. Rick Bright. Dr. Scarpino, thank you. That's in-depth for the day. We'll be back tomorrow.